real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast. Be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. If you haven't already, be sure to grab your free copy of my first two books, Frugalpreneur and Authorpreneur, by going to thesarahstjohn.com forward slash free. That's T-H-E-S-A-R-A-H-S-T-J-O-H-N dot com forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I am your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is a serial entrepreneur, podcast host, keynote speaker, online expert, business and performance coach. Welcome, Chris Michael Harris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, and how you got into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So we could be here a while for that one. I'll try to keep it as condensed and, and short when it is possible here. So kind of always just inherently knew that I didn't see at least for myself, right? I certainly see the merit for other people, but the hour for pay model just didn't resonate with me. And that goes as far back as 10, 11, 12 years old. Started out by just mowing all of my neighbor's lawns. And one summer in fifth grade, I made like two or $3,000 while my friends were hanging out at the pool. And I was like, this is pretty cool, right? I can kind of dictate my own hours and do what I want and maximize my earning potential. And then that kind of carried on into high school and then eventually college and so on and so forth. So I would say that I kind of always knew inherently that I was an entrepreneur keeping in mind also that this was a time where the internet didn't exist. I'm, I am dating myself here. The internet existed, albeit not in this, the current modality, the current iteration that it is now. And certainly social media in the capacity that it exists now wasn't prevalent at all, right? So starting an Instagram page and calling yourself an entrepreneur, that didn't exist. And that wasn't the rite of passage to becoming an entrepreneur, right? And I don't even know that I necessarily knew what the word entrepreneur was. I knew a business owner, but I don't think I knew what the entrepreneurship word meant or was, or whatever, even had that in my, my vocabulary. College rolled around and, and just kind of saw an opportunity. And really, I think sometimes we overthink entrepreneurship. I think sometimes we think it's about the great sexy idea. And sometimes we stay stuck because we're looking or waiting for that thing to hit us. And the reality of it is, is that it's finding problems and, and identifying them and then deriving a solution for people's real problems. So in college, I'm getting ready to graduate and I still have no idea what I want to do. And all my friends are getting interviews and jobs and I just feel kind of lost. So we saw these girls, we being my brother and myself, and they we lived in a building in downtown Athens, Georgia, that had this extraordinarily long hallway. I always joke and say the building was designed by a kindergartner with a crayon because it made no sense where some of the units were in relation to the parking deck. And so these poor girls are having to move one of those like fold out sofas, you know, the big wrought iron, you know, like they're really heavy and they're having to move down the hallway and we kind of see them like stumbling and, you know, almost hitting doors and stuff like that because it's a big piece of furniture. So at the time I, we had always really worked out and I wasn't Hulk Hogan, but I was able to help them. And my brother and I were able to jump in and help them. And the mom threw us $50. It's like the quickest 50 bucks I'd ever made, right? Or at least I kind of saw like, oh, here's another one of those opportunities. Here's the lawn mowing opportunity. Here's another opportunity. I went and valet cars and made, I think one weekend made 600 bucks valley. So I was always doing something, flipping cars, flipping clothes. You know, there's a, there's a, in terms of side hustles, there's a list of about 150 long 
refereeing sport sport events like basketball and football, just always involved with other alternative ways to make money. And so this was just another one in that lineage of opportunities that I immediately like light bulb went off. So we had built a relationship with the, the lease office manager. And I'd like to say it was based off the premise of good merit, not necessarily from it through a negative lens. But the reason we had a relationship with is because we were known as the party room because we had extensive parties and were very loud and got a lot of noise complaints. So I think she kind of understood that like we were good kids. We just were having a good time. But anyway, so she saw something in us and I think we were always respectful and cordial with her. So we asked her, we said, here's the deal. We help these girls. We think it's great. We think that this building really needs this and some help. So can we put up a flyer just at the lease office and people that are coming in and asking for moving help? Can you just let them know that we're available? Well, next thing I know, we're getting calls like every other day to, for just people in that building. So I think in the next like month and a half, we generated like six or $8,000 between just my brother and myself. And it just so happened that we had a friend that would later become a roommate that his grandfather had a moving truck that he just said we could use scot-free, no, no charge, just put gas in it, paying for the insurance, paid for everything for us. So it was very serendipitous in that regard. I graduate and go off and get a quote unquote real job, right? Sales job, nine to five. And I was coming back on the weekends to help them. Well, the next summer, I think they did something like $23,000 over the course of the entire summer. Now, keep in mind, this is two college kids with t-shirts and a grandpa's moving truck, right? This is not like an extensive thing here we're doing. Uh, but they start having to hire friends and I gave them some dollars to do some promotional stuff. They were literally utilizing their classrooms to talk about what we were doing. They were going to fraternities and sororities and kind of presenting it during their chapter meetings monthly. And so we started to really build this movement, if you will, around like students supporting students. And you see little companies like that popping up all over, moving companies like that. So I'm miserable at this point, right? I have that job and I'm, I'm you know, and I, I'm making sales and realizing the smallest little sliver that I get, 5% commission. And I'm like, so I just traveled all the way across the country, did all of the work, all the preparation, made the sale and I get 5%? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like that, re that was just as silly to me as the hourly nine to five debate that I had in my mind all those years ago. So anyways, I decided to just jump in, go for it full time. I said, I think we've got something here. And within the next, I think from that point forward, I think in the next 18 months, we generate our first million dollars with that business and, and went even beyond that. And that was without any external funding whatsoever. That was completely bootstrapped with zero experience in my mid-20s. So again, I, I don't want to say that I fell into entrepreneurship. I certainly think I've always had the predisposition and the mindset for it. But in terms of the opportunities that led me into it, absolutely, it was just kind of following and analyzing the market and seeing opportunity and then just seizing that moment in time. Wow. Uh, so do you still operate that company or no 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 okay. so that's a whole another story we did that we did that business we generated multiple millions with that business over the next four years or so we were in that business for for some time now primarily my efforts that was a service-based business very intensive very laborious and very very challenging so that's an entirely different story and we can certainly get into that if you'd like um and i'm happy to i'm curious what the name of it is of uh, that business was lifted uh -huh. moving and storage Okay. Because I'm thinking of another one that sounds like the college hunks removing yeah. junk or something like that. There's college hunks. There's bellhops. I actually have several that I mentor now. I'm actually on several advisory boards, uh, the home team in Cincinnati, keep an eye on them. They're kind of expanding in the Midwest. So, you know, it, it's definitely a space that requires a lot of innovation. It's been very neglected and, and kind of, uh, it's not a glamorous industry by any stretch. And so there's a huge opportunity right now to provide a better solution. I would liken it to what Uber was to the taxi cab industry, except probably a little bit worse in terms of the need for innovation. 
So then did you sell the company? Yeah. So that unfortunately, and fortunately, as it turned out, was not by my own design. In 2016, we started our expansion process. We had at that point hired, I think it, at any given time, it was a very seasonal business. We were up to like 350 to 500 employees, give or take at any given time in 32 states, I think we had touched. We started doing, so expanded from that, moving kids residentially to the trend in student housing was fully furnished, right? So you move into your college apartment off campus and all of your stuff is there, your beds, your sofas, your entertainment center, coffee table, nightstand, so on and so forth. So you just bring your clothes because usually the, the churn for those apartments is about 80%. So they're losing and moving into every single year, they're moving into new apartments. So there's a you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense for students to bring grandma's old oak chest of drawers when that thing weighs 500 pounds and you have to move it four times while you're in college. And that's assuming you graduate in four years. So fully furnished was the trend. Think Ikea-esque, right? It's kind of what we were, we, when the request came through, the first one we got to do these installation jobs, I legitimately almost didn't call back because I thought it was a spoof. It came through the website and it, it was a request to move 316 bedrooms. And it was from someone that has like an Asian name. And so I just figured it was like some bot overseas or whatever that just hit the website. And I didn't think it was real until I saw it had a Miami area code. And I was like, whoa, this may, might actually be real. I'll call and see. And it turned out it was one of those furniture manufacturers that was looking for someone like us in our town to do a job. And we were the only ones that they had worked with that they didn't have to go back after the fact, meaning installation crew and fix their mess because we just took a lot more innovative white collar approach to a very blue collar industry. And that was a fun time. You know, I really like figuring that I would actually would get out and take my stopwatch and measure like how long it took for people to carry certain pieces of furniture, because I had no idea how to quote a job like that. I never done anything like that. So, but I was determined. I stayed up till like every night, like three in the morning trying to figure out, okay, how I knew this was like one of those pivotal moments that I had to secure that contract. So that we did a great job, ended up doing all those over the country for that specific business. And then we ended up working with within a very short duration of time, five of the seven major players in that space, several which are, are, are publicly traded companies, do hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And here I am at 25, just started out. And it's like, how am I even in this building? Let alone talking to you guys about business, getting $100,000, $200,000 contracts. It was so crazy. So anyway, so to answer your question more directly, 2016 rolls around. And one of the things that I wanted to do is I said, okay, we have all this exposure that we're getting from these commercial installation assignments why don't we utilize that visibility to that market to establish a residential footprint, right? So we can do the residential moves and then we can also do the furniture installation when we get those requests. And the, the grand build out that I had or the vision that I had for it was let's find older retail locations, right? Piggly Wiggly, Big Lots, some of those things that Best Buy, some of those retail locations that they're, they're all going smaller. Like the trend is online and smaller footprint, less overhead and less your Ikea, right? Everything else is going smaller. So why don't we find one of those, one man's trash, another man's treasure, and we can use that. And basically we will go in and renovate the facility for indoor climate control self-storage. And we'll use the layaway space for our overseas dropship furniture when we do those installation jobs. So we really were trying to like bridge the entire market and connect everything together. And everybody was, it was a pretty, to be in your mid twenties and take on that kind of, that's, that's quite a lot. To, that's a big bite to chew, Right. So we were in the process of raising money 2016 and all of a sudden I was just running out of gas. I was just like really tired, which was very unusual for me. And I, I remember like taking caffeine pills and, you know, like working out two or three times a day, just trying to like get to the point where I could actually deliver the value that I needed to deliver to continue to do this. And I was pitching investors like crazy. I pitched 725 investors in three months, which my business coach is like, dude, I've never seen that kind of velocity. Like that's unbelievable. 
So anyways, things were getting tight as we were expanding and didn't have that external capital that we needed. Come June of 2016, finally broke down. My wife's like, you have to go see what's going on. Like you look terrible health-wise. This is not normal. I was having difficulties, uh, not to be too graphic or gross or TMI, but let's just say not number one. I was having a lot of issues. In the month of May, I think I had one movement the whole month. So just internally, I was just shutting down and we were like, it's time to go to the doctor. So we did a bunch of lab work, like $2,000 worth of lab work and found out that I was very, very much flirting with colon cancer. Let's just put it at that. The doctors basically said, look, we have been doing this for 35 years as a practice. And for your age, we've not seen anybody in this kind of condition. If you keep up at this pace, you're not going to be here at 40, let alone doing what you're doing with your business. We think it's largely stress involved, but we also think too, that a lot of it's been going on for most of your life. And you just, it was kind of unbeknownst to you. I'd struggle with ADD and, and depression, stuff like that, anxiety, and been medicated for, for those things and not realizing that the, the gut had anything to do at all with any of those cognitive functions, just kind of treated externally or treated it more isolated or localized to, you know, some of the pharmaceutical drugs, which some of those actually cause further damage and issues. I won't get off my tirade on that. So anyways, very quickly, we realized that as my energy levels and as I was unable to continue pushing the business ad I had done before, we had a tragic motor vehicle accident there a couple months after that almost killed my employees, plus the people they were involved in the accident with them. They had used the jaws of life and there was a million dollar settlement involved of which I couldn't even talk about for a long time because there was litigation involved. I'd also taken a bridge loan while we were raising funding and I had a, a commitment letter from several investors to take lead position bridge loan. Obviously I wasn't able to pay that back once the accident happened. Attorney's like, dude, we got to shut down like this. We can't do this. This is a huge, huge exposure. Anytime you have something like that, your investors are going to bail out because as soon as they sign up and they take equity position in your company, they're just as exposed to that lawsuit as you are. Right. And so they dropped out bridge loan. People are now coming after me to sue me. I'm deathly ill. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to figure it out. And that was the birth of what I'm doing now, which was the podcast, which was, I have to do something. I can't just sit around because the doctors gave me an option. They said, we can pursue this with more drugs, right? And just mask some of the symptoms or we can really pursue this naturally and see if we can't rectify the situation, but it's going to be really hard. It's going to take a ton of discipline. It's going to take a ton of sacrifice. You have to change everything about your lifestyle, your eating habits, everything. And it's going to be years, right? And so we obviously opted for the latter, the, the difficult road. And that's the journey that I've been on. And that's the journey that I'm still like on the very tail end of, I just got medical clearance to continue or to resume rather working out at the gym. Like I didn't lift weights or I couldn't do anything physically strenuous for four years. So I just got back into the gym, which was an amazing, amazing breakthrough. But yeah, I would say it was very much taken out of my hands by God, by whatever it is you believe in, obviously had different plans for my future than what I was doing. And that's a very long way to tell a a long story, but hopefully in in concise enough to get kind of give people the, the general message there. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know all that. I appreciate you sharing that. (laughs) I'm sure sure that's not easy to think about and talk about. So then in 2016 is when you started kind of more of an online entrepreneurial journey with the podcast and all that. And what else have you been doing? Yeah. So the podcast was just kind of like, man, this has been really hard. This being building a business, right? And like, you know, I remember, and there's stories for days, but I remember times you know, like having a major cash flow issue. Like at one point I was owed $443,000 by these furniture manufacturers. And I had like $75,000 in payroll and there was like $20,000 in the account. And I had maybe 24 hours until payroll was going to be processed by our payroll provider. 
And so we had an ABL, which is asset-based lending. I have to say it slower or else it's a tongue twister, which is different than factoring, but would convert to a factoring relationship if it wasn't paid in accordance with certain parameters and timeframes. So anyways, I'm driving through Manhattan for one of these assignments that somebody had to leave and I had to fill in for. And I'm, you know, this was like my summer of 2014. I was all over the, I mean, at one point I drove the distance from New York to LA and halfway back in 10 days. That's literally to give you a, you know, a red eyes were just, I mean, I remember taking sleeping pills just to try to get some sleep because I was so stressed all the time about just what was going on and what needed to be done. And it was just, anytime my phone rang, I knew there was a problem that I had to fix. Right. And so it was crazy. We grew too fast. We were growing way too fast. And I wasn't prepared for that as an entrepreneur. I wasn't prepared for that kind of growth. Uh, and that's part of what led to the demise of both myself and the business too, by the way. Uh, I think we all look at growth and we we misinterpret sales for business growth. And it's certainly a part of it. It's a lever. It's a part of growth, but it's not a direct measure per se of business growth. I think some of us really misinterpret those none more so than I did myself. So anyway, so the bottom line is, is that I'm having all these incredible, very stressful <laughs> experiences and I was like, you know what? Like something about me is always deeply aligned with influence and impact, right? Always. And I remember just like feeling so alive when I'd be asked to come in and, you know, speak at my alma mater and talk to the students or be asked to come in and speak about entrepreneurship or business or whatever. And like, I always really found a lot of joy in that and it was missing from my life. And so I was like, why don't we, you know, I'm having all these profound conversations, both with my coaches and my advisors and, and other entrepreneurs. I'm like, why don't we record these conversations, right? Like, this is so impactful. This is such a waste to not do that. So that's how it started. This is early. This is the end of 2015, early 2016. So right around the time that I was getting sick and all this, like, I don't know. It's like, like again, so I feel like it's divine, right? Like all of a sudden it was just like one thing was replacing the other. It was very, very bizarre that way. So within two weeks, the show was trending uh, and we're not the biggest show in the world, but, but this really helped us get a good kickstart, a good jump. We were the top five in the, at the time iTunes under new and noteworthy under business, health and education. And immediately I was like, okay, how do I leverage this? Like, this is a moment in time where we've got to capitalize on this, right? Like, I don't know what this thing's going to become, but it needs to become something because seize the day, right? Like whenever you're going to be trending again. So we started reaching out to big guests, right? We started reaching out and actually several of them reached out to us, which was awesome because then we would utilize their name and their brand clout to reach out to other people and say, Hey, we had so-and-so, I know you're friends with them and I know you're aware of them and they have a big name in the space. So would you also be willing to come on our show? We're trending right now. We're getting X amount of downloads per day. You can see this. I took a screen grab. This is where we're trending. You can see it's number three on the top charts under business. Boom, let's do it. So we secured Damon John. It took about a year and a half to actually confirm the date on that, but we actually secured him. We actually got a commitment and a hard yes. By the way, that's an interesting story. 250 emails back and forth correspondence to get him on my show. Now, Ethan, a uh, guy who represents, you know, works for a firm that represents Damon, him and I are bros. We text all the time. We're always joking about my tenacity and persistence to get Damon on my show. He's like, I've never worked with anybody that was so both annoying and persistent. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that kind of took on a life of its own. And I still didn't know what I was going to do to monetize that. And that really wasn't the purpose because I was really focused on growing, you know, the offline business and raising money and stuff like that. So I, I really didn't know. I think one of the big things that I started to realize was that in this day and age, in this world, one of the most valuable assets that you can build is brand. If you look at a lot of what people do, people wonder like, well, Gary Vaynerchuk, I just gave this example. Gary Vaynerchuk, why does he have this like extensive online brand and he puts so much effort? He has 25 people that work full time for him just recording what he does for his social media content, just doing content, but he doesn't sell anything. Why? He understands the value of brand. When you have brand, right? Look at uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. You and I are both in Texas, very familiar with Chip and Joanna Gaines. The Magnolia brand has value. It has, it's, it is, it has its own, it's its own asset in and of itself. 
And so what you can do when you've created that is you can ex- extend and expand that into other ancillary areas, right? So you can start selling furniture. You can start opening a line with Target like they've done. You can obviously go the TV route. You can use that. You could open up hotel chains. You could, I mean, there's so many things you can do with and under the Magnolia brand being what it is. And same with Gary. So Gary can leverage that and go into anything he wants, including, imagine my situation. I'm trying to raise money to 700, you know, pitching 725 investors. And one of the things that drove me absolutely insane was here I am. And most, you know, most startups, they're pitching for money. They've not done anything. They haven't made a dollar. At that point, I had generated like three and a half million dollars. And I'm asking for, you know, maybe somebody to take a lead position for 300,000. That's nothing. I could pay that back literally on my own merit. I don't even need your investment to pay off for us to be able to pay that back. I could really structure payments on my own. Why am I having to prove this to you? Do you think that Gary Vaynerchuk with the brand clout that he has and the visibility he has, if he needs anything, if he wants any door open to anybody in the world outside of like Vladimir Putin and maybe two others, he can probably open that door or have that door open for him or get an introduction. So I really, at that point was like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I obviously understand and have a different viewpoint of brand. I think when some people see it as playing around on Facebook, it's like, no, no, no. What you don't understand is this. Your email list is an asset. Your subscribers, your followers, all those people, those are people, those are assets. That's exposure that is literally invaluable. It's the equivalence of, in my, in my mind, actual physical money to a large degree. And it can take you any which direction that you want to go. So at that time, I didn't know what I was going to do to monetize it. When the company went kaput and I had to figure out what I was going to do, fortunately, my wife and I are both entrepreneurs and we were able to help her. She was kind of in like a pivoting moment as well, going from service provider into content course creator. And she was in the middle of that. And we had a crazy successful launch with that. And that really gave me a little bit more of a runway. So what I went into and I leaned into is what my coach taught me when he had his fall. Let's call it that. I hate the word failure. I hate it because entrepreneurs, we have to just learn to live with this idea that things aren't going to go more often than not nine out of 10 times, things are going to go the way you want it to go. So if we keep building this construct and narrative in our mind that it's failure, then we feel like a failure. There's no such thing as failure, right? You have to get that out of your mind because I can tell you having a fall myself, that was, that was largely painful and very, very hard to, to overcome was this narrative that I had failed. So anyway, so figuring that out just kind of was like, he was like, look, one of the things I did to come back from my fall was I leaned in and I gave to others and I just supported. And so I got involved with programs like Founder Institute, which is a Silicon Valley accelerator program and just helping people work towards building their dreams. Uh, I was putting out content on the regular. One of the things that I did, even in the, the depths of my illness, when I was literally bedridden, I remember getting up and people won't be able to see this because this is audio only, but I had my interview with Damon eventually. And I remember sitting there and like hunched over and like having to hold my head up. I just felt so terrible that most of my interviews, if you go back from anywhere between 2016 and about 2018, most of those interviews, I felt abysmal. I mean, just absolutely terrible. But I I just kind of knew I had to keep doing something, even if that's the only thing that I could do was put out content, right? I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I know it's going to be fruitful. It's just somewhere down the road. It's going to be going to be beneficial. So I got involved with those programs, kept putting out content. And then I did start getting requests. Hey man, resonated with what you said. I need somebody like this. Can I pay you 150 bucks, right? To help me with this, whatever, right? With this advice. And you know, this is what I'm trying to do. I need investors. Can you help me? So people would pay me a percentage if I was able to help them raise money or they pay me $150 a session. So organically we started getting inbound opportunities for coaching based off the content I was creating because every piece of content that you create is creating a new doorway of an entry point into what you do and how you serve. Not that you're creating it with that intent. It just happens organically, especially if you're doing it the right way and you aren't knowledgeable about what you're talking about. So it turned into coaching. My rates 
exponentially increased to where they are now, which is five to $10,000 a month. And we are in the process. We kind of wanted to, another example of something happening organically, which you'll hear me say that word a lot, was really kind of falling in love with this idea, something I'd never done and realized as I did a postmortem on my journey, the previous business was, you know, I did a lot of rolling up my sleeves and did a lot of the, the hard work, which is, there's no replacement for that. There's no such thing. I, I've never been all these ninja strategies and secret hacks. And I think they're largely fluff. I think they're largely whatever it's, it's hocus pocus. I've never found a substitute for hard work and I'm not diminishing that. I, I don't necessarily like the, the saying work smart, not hard. I, I think you do both. You just have to be calculated. But one thing that I hadn't done and I'd really underestimated was look, people have put out content. They, they've written books, you know, and the way I look at it is they're sharing. It's their own manual for success in life. It's their own manual for happiness, their own manual for joy, right? All of these things that they've done. And yeah, some would say that people do it to make the money, but if you really analyze it, if you go through a publisher, you don't make that much money, right? You're doing it for exposure. And honestly, because you really love to give back and pay it forward and create a legacy and all those things. And so I just started reading and kind of looking for the answers to the depth of my pain that I felt about what had happened. And, you know, through that and the podcast and all the authors that were coming on my show, it just, we started to like find this following around people that were immersing themselves in this idea. And I was trying to figure out how can I take this, you know, this being the author's and these amazing entrepreneurs, you know, like Damon came on to promote his book, Power of Broke, right? Like, how do I extend upon that relationship besides just being a one way, hey, come on, publish, talk about your book that's coming out. And then that's it. That's the end of our relationship. How do I build on that? Right. And then how do I deliver some value to the audience beyond just, you know, the book or the thought or the theory or the synopsis of the book? So we launched a book club uh, and it was basically to create a symbiotic relationship and a more deep learning immersive experience for the audience, but also a chance too for the authors to not only talk about and promote their, their book on my show, but then also to create little snippets on the side that we include inside of my book club, inside of the digital aspect in the vault, what we call the vault, which is basically a library of, of content for every book that we do in the community, where they actually share more about the actual implementation of the work, the things that I didn't have in my first business, because Sure, I was being a pioneer and I used to tell myself, like, I'm a pioneer, I'm going to figure things out. Well, that's okay, but that's a really painful way to do things. So I kind of learned to adapt this mantra that I call LEADER, and it's an acronym, L-I-T-R, and it's learn, implement, test, and repeat. That's learn, implement, test, and repeat. And that keeps me in accountability with myself to make sure before you jump into anything, before you implement and roll up your sleeves, go learn something about it first. If you run Facebook ads, okay. That's great. And, and and you need to do that. And that's fantastic. But go learn something about how to do that and the right way to do it. So you're not having to go back and then fix all your messes that you created, which ends up taking way more time to fix the mess than you could have avoided in the first place. And then test, right? Sometimes people just put things in motion, they roll up their sleeves and they have no way of really measuring tangibly if it's actually working. It's just, well, I did that and it's running and it's like, okay, well, you're spending $20 a day on, on this Facebook ad. Do you know if it's working? I, I don't know. Have you checked your conversions? Have you looked at your Google analytics? Are you watching Hotjar every day to see what people are actually, how they're engaging on this page? Are you not wasting your money? I don't know. Right? So test and then repeat, right? Make sure to remind yourself, you don't, this is not a one-time thing. You continue that learning and that growing process. And so that's kind of like the spirit of what we tried to create with the book club. And eventually now we just had actually yesterday at the time of recording this, we just had our launch of version 3.0, which is kind of moving one step closer to an actual app 
that would allow people to go through reading plans and get notifications every day and reminders and little nuggets of wisdom that all relate to the specific title that they're reading that month or for that particular, you know, couple of weeks in time. So I just threw a lot at you. That was so much. I'm sorry. Oh, oh uh, no problem. Away. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate it. I'm fascinated by that VIP book club concept because I read a lot of books too. Anywhere from one book a day to one book a week. Somewhere oh, wow. There. Yeah. <laughs> That's expensive. And, yeah. And so, yeah, I just get started and I just can't stop. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of the books on your website, I saw you holding up a few different ones, like The One Thing and mm, there were maybe. there were some others. Yeah. And I was like, I think I've read most of those. But it would have been cool to like what you're doing where there's some kind of plan, implementation plan sure. along with it. Yeah. So... Is it like you cover one book per month? Yeah, we do one a month. And then now you'll have the ability to all of the titles that we've covered in the community, which you're like, if you're reading a book a day that like you're so far beyond what we're doing, <laughs> <laughs> the fastest we do is 15 days. So you can start a 15 day reading plan. What we've done is we now give kind of like a trailer, if you will, to the book itself inside the community. That way you can decide because I do believe firmly you mentioned the one thing that is my literally my favorite business book, if not my favorite book outside of the Bible of all time. And the reason being is because I think it gives a lot of people like myself the freedom and permission to focus on truly what is the one thing that's going to move your life and business forward more than anything else. And that's the priority and that takes precedence over everything. So in the spirit of that, we really wanted to give people that ability, if you will, to pick and choose the titles that they wanted to go through when it's relevant to whatever season they're in in their life, right? If we did a read along, I'm having the pressure of having to appease everybody that specific month. And I don't know if that's what's relevant for this season of your business. So by me forcing you to read something that I deem is important, maybe to me right now, doesn't mean that that's going to resonate with everybody else. So the, the essence of what we've created then is people can pick titles that are relevant to that season or whatever they need to go through, or they can go back through them again or whatever the case may be. But we focus on depth. I think so many people, I always say this, but, um, reading a book to then just collect us back on your bookshelf, but not taking action and getting results is futile. It was, it was rendered mostly a waste of time. What I like to see is dig into it, like read between the lines. What does this mean and how does it apply to you? Because sometimes we really miss out on the real nuggets in some of these books when we don't say, okay, that was a cute story. And I love the fact that, you know, we just read Smart Cuts and he talks about all of these people that ended up being you know, Skrillex or, El or Elon Musk. And like, they're really cool and fascinating stories about how they achieve the success or to the degree of success that they have. But we don't deconstruct that and reverse engineer it for what it looks like in our lives. We remember the story, but we don't say and carve out a roadmap of like, okay, let's sit with this for a minute. Let's not just read and turn 200 pages a day. Let's sit with that. Let's meditate on that. Let's think about an action strategy based on that and what that looks like in my own life, and my own business, right? Because oftentimes I think we, once you put that down, you know, it's been proven that the brain only retains about 10% of what it learns within the next 24 hours. So I wanted to really spend time, you know, to dig into and, and dig deep on some of these books. Uh, and it's funny that we've done that because some people will read a book and then come back and read it differently through a different lens, the way that we structure it. And they're like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that I remember, but I just learned it in a different way this time. So that's really what we're trying to accomplish. And it's not for everybody. Like, I totally get that. If I'm being quite honest, the reason that I started it the way that we're doing it is because I can't do more than seven to 10 pages at a time because my scatterbrain is all over the place. I'm way too ADD. The thought of reading a book in a day, it like terrifies me. I'm, I'm like, like to me, you might as well be like, Hey, you have two options. You can climb Everest this afternoon with no training and no equipment, or you can read a whole entire book. 
I would really struggle <laughs> about which one I would choose. And that is an honest to God response. I like, that's how terrifying that proposition mm-hmm. feels to me. Uh, and I think as busy business owners, I think some of us, it, 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 you add that complexity to it and kids and relationships. And so I think what ends up happening is, and you're the rare exception is people end up just not reading at all. Right. And we've never had more information available to us than what we have right now. Right. And so I think it's a matter of not only doing it, but then how do I take this and get results with it? And that's kind of like the beauty. And I'm having to go back and learn that part of it. And I think some people are now learning how to take the action part. And so we're kind of like all meeting each other in the middle. And you brought up that you learning, but not implementing, which that has always been one of my biggest struggles is, yeah, I spend all this time reading all these books, but how much of that am I implementing? So recently I decided that for every hour I spend learning, whether that's through reading a book or taking an online course or listening to a podcast or whatever, that I'll spend another hour implementing. Yeah, that's a good good principle. So then do you work with the authors to kind of curate these plans? I guess, kind of like lesson plan, sort of? Yeah, I think we've had 30 to 40% of them actually show up in the community and several of which I've developed relationships with through them coming on my podcast. So there is talks of an affiliate program where they would have their audience referred to our community. I mean, there's obviously for them, there's an affiliate play, you know, 50% LTV involved with that, which is really, really cool. Again, creating in the spirit of that symbiotic relationship is what we're trying to create. But yeah, several of them show up near AOL, good example, wrote the book Indistractable and Hooked. Fantastic, brilliant mind. We had Mike Michalowicz, author of Profit First. Brilliant, really, really awesome. And very, very intuitive way to do your cash management with your business. Ryan Levesque has been in the community. And I can go on and on. There's been very, very, very highly esteemed. And, and I would say a lot of those minds too specifically, and not to, I'm not taking any disparaging shots at Mike. Mike is certainly brilliant in his own mind. But I would say near AOL and Ryan Levesque are two of the smartest human beings. Ryan's a friend of mine, but, but they are two of the most brilliant human beings you'll ever meet to the point that it's one of those things where you talk to them and you're like, okay, I got to keep up with this guy because he is so, so much more vastly intelligent than I am that it's really a struggle sometimes to have communications with them. Yeah. I've read his ask book and I have the choose book, but I haven't read it yet. I've kind of have like this whole backlog of books, like a hundred, a hundred books to go through, but how many books would you say you have in the vault then? I think we've got almost two years worth. We do one a month. So almost like 24. So it's not expensive. There are more out there that have hundreds and hundreds of titles. But again, they're focusing on, hey, let's cover as much topic as we can. And I'm focused on let's get as much results as we can. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of the the difference. And that's there's I think this is a valuable lesson for people. Sometimes I think they'll look at somebody like a mentor box. Right. Very, very, very popular source or or Blinkist. Another really popular source for like books, more book summary uh, versus book knowledge and depth and immersion. Um, and they will deter them away from wanting to start something because they, somebody's already doing that. Right. And I think one of the things you have to realize is that as a creator, you know, I know your audience has, you have a lot of creators and people that are looking to do something if they're not already doing something. I remember early in my entrepreneurial days, seeing, getting online and Googling that someone else like moving company would freak me out if I found anybody that was doing something even remotely similar to what I was doing. And I think what you have to do is you have to understand that if you don't find competition, it's probably for a reason right? You want to find competition. You want somebody to validate your market. I've even been involved with several companies because I'm in other capacities, whether that's brand ambassador, advisory board, so on and so forth, equity positions in companies. And sometimes we will literally strategically wait for someone else to penetrate the market, right? Because if you look at it, a lot of those early, a lot of those really early penetrators, they actually kind of open the doorway for everybody else to come in and have big success. And so you want to find that you want to find other people doing it. And then what you do is rather than fear, because fear really will scare us 
out of taking action, right? It's like, oh, well, and then we move on to another idea. And the idea was probably great in many cases, or it probably was a valid market there. You might not have your blue ocean because you necessarily haven't found a segment or a way or a need in the market that's not currently being filled. But to think and to have this, uh, this narrative in your mind that one product or one service or one provider is filling all of the areas of the market, is penetrated completely 100% of the market and captured 100% of the market. If they were doing that, it would be a very crappy service, right? Because they'd be so, they'd be trying to be everything to everyone and thus they'd be nothing to no one, right? So what you want to do is find how you fit, what's your, you'll hear this word a lot, niche, right? And one of my early entrepreneurial advisors said, uh, he called it, he would say it niche, right? So you say niches lead to riches, right? And, and I firmly believe in that. So it's really analyzing the market, seeing what's out there. What is, you know, mentor box doing? Uh, what is leader books doing with Michael Hyatt? What is Blinkist doing that we can do different to serve the people that we serve and understand who those people are? So something people might think is they're like, oh, well, this must be a huge book club. No, we have like a hundred members and I've been doing it for almost two years and we've pretty much stayed pretty static. And that was somewhat by design. I think so many of us get in this big rush to like, okay, we've got something and grow. And people think, well, Chris, you're contradicting what you said because your moving company exploded. Well, here's what you don't see, right? Yeah, I said that, but think about what I said, right? Like analyze and go back and think what I said. The first summer we did it as college kids, you know, just kind of tossing stuff around, right? On our own. Next summer we did it again. So now we're talking about a whole year. That's year two. I didn't even start doing it full time until almost three years in, which is really early for most startups, by the way. I only did $48,000 in the next year. And then finally, by year four, we hit, we did experience massive growth. We went from 48,000 to $500,000. So 1000% growth, which is unheard of kind of growth. And I would never expect anybody to replicate that. And then finally, you know, hitting 1.2, but it sounds like it just happened in this like really short period of time. But if you really expand it out and look at what it actually was, it was five years. And I can even think back to high school and one of the jobs that we did that opened up my eyes or this notion of this idea of a moving company was there was an elderly couple. My friend and I did lawn care work and they needed a mover and they didn't trust the nationwide carriers. Like they wanted somebody that was going to be a little bit more intimate experience. So this idea of a moving company, that was probably like, oh, four Right. So this had been in my brain for like eight years before it actually became what it was or what it ended up becoming. And I don't know where this random tidbit came in my head, but we have been deliberately not just putting a bunch of ad spend behind the book club and just trying to grow it up to this massive thousand person, multiple thousand person thing, because you really want to get the opportunity to beta test and get to know who your users are. Because then when you do put ad spend behind it, A, you know what you're doing, right? Because hopefully you've been doing it for a while. You really know what people are you understand where you fit in the market, right? But so many times what we do is we run these ads and it's just buy, 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 right? Meaning purchase, buy, not buy like goodbye. And there's no real substance behind it, right? And so you'll see some of these marketers, kind of the cheap marketers that I call them, that have paid models and luxury cars behind them. And that's their way of luring you in through some of the superficial means, right? Of appeasing people. It's probably not who you want to serve, right? Those people are not doing it for the right reasons. The people you want to serve are the people that have deep meaning behind what they do and how they do it for people. You don't know that until you've had the chance to work with people, right? So I have a methodology that I, I call and I'm living it right now. It's crawl, walk, run. That's the three basic iterations and there's subsets of these iterations inside of your business. But the crawl phase is where you're doing that hands-on work. A lot of people try to jump specifically in the online space. They try to jump directly to selling program online. There's a reason why I started doing the coaching. There's a reason why I started being involved with these programs on a volunteer basis, right? There's a reason why I'm on advisory boards before I just started to try to grow the book club. And even then starting the book club, it's 
yeah, but I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I know that I've done this before, but what I've done before, I'm not saying that it didn't count for anything because it certainly did. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do now without it. But at the same time, I don't know how to teach in this specific modality. I don't know how I've done it myself, but doing it yourself and teaching it are so fundamentally different, right? That I am almost disingenuous. Gary Vaynerchuk said something recently that 95% of online courses are scams. And I was kind of deeply offended by that, just given how much I put in and what I just said, right? Like really taking my time to make sure that I do deliver value. But I understand where the principle and where that ideology came from. And it's because of what I said previously. There's so much pressure on all of us, meaning online business owners, to get to market, scale, grow, whatever, right? It's not serve. It's not value. It's not help people. It's, it's around what are my dollar milestones? And I almost hate sometimes telling my story and giving those dollar milestones because what it does is it tells people, this is what you should be doing. It has you measure your success up against the success that I experienced. I had very early success, but look how it ended, right? And I'm not saying like, hey, I failed because again, I don't believe in that as, an, as a construct, but here's the deal. It didn't end the way that I wanted it to. The desired result didn't happen. I told you myself, we grew way too fast. We have to get away from this as a society, as a culture. Now, that doesn't mean I want you to sit on your ass for 15 years and not make any money and justify it and say, oh, well, Chris said go slow. Yes, I said go slow, but that doesn't mean that you're not going slow with tenacity, right? Urgency, not desperation, right? Make sure that you are urgently pursuing that growth. Make sure you're urgently and really market immersion. I just talked to Jay Abraham, brilliant marketer. He was just on my show and he talked about that. He said the biggest problem, and I actually filled in his words to be a little bit more abrasive than the way he said it. But basically he said that the problem with our culture, meaning looking through generational lens, he's an elderly, I don't want to call him elderly. He's not elderly. I'm <laughs> sorry, Jay. I love you, Jay. He was awesome. He's older than me. Okay. And he broke into, you know, direct response in the eighties. Right. So he's been around, he's been, he's an OG and he has stood the test of time. And he, for the reasons that I just said, he's done it the right way. He's taken his time. He's made sure that he is not, there's, there's tactics and there's strategies, right? Cheap tactics, paid models, luxury cars. Okay, fine. You might make a quick buck. You might be a flash in the pan. Great. But build something that's everlasting, build something that's going to last forever. Be a Tony Robbins. I mean, how long your parents know Tony Robbins, your kids will know Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins is a household name at this point because he's taken, he's played the long game, he's played the long game. So we have to remove this artificial pressure and these artificial timelines on ourselves that we shackle ourselves with. This thing has to grow and be multiple six figures and this and that. And here's the beauty in all that. This is why I tell the story. And this is why I'm being very, very long winded because I want to make sure that you know people understand this. What ends up happening is this, right? We took four years as little college kids to do whatever. And I've seen this multiple times away, not just with that business. So it's not an isolated case. We did the same thing with my wife's business. And we're doing the same thing now with the book club. When you immerse yourself and you do the heavy lifting and you really understand the value that you provide, right? And you understand where you fit in the market. What ends up happening is this, the phone rings and immediately, you know, what kind of client avatar it is. You know what they want, you know how to deliver it. You know exactly what their concerns are. You know, their life story, you know, everything about them, right? And, and, and create these too. create these client avatars, like actually know these people, get time, interview them, get to know them, right? Like understand their world. Like Jay Abraham said, like immerse yourself in the market. He said that as a society, as a generation, we're just not doing that, right? Like we just expect, we're, we don't like delayed gratification. That was the point I was trying to make with Jay to kind of conclude that thought. And so in that sense, I, I think I said that we were self-absorbed, I think is what I said. Once you understand your market, once you really sink your teeth into them, and once you really understand the way that you deliver the value, the way that you do it, and you understand the industry as a whole that you're operating in, what you end up finding is that you see the opportunities through a completely different lens. And that is what allows for accelerated growth. Because here's the thing, we think that growth means doing more. Growth means doing less, but doing it better than anybody. 
right? And maybe that concept doesn't make a lot of sense to people, but the opportunity that we got, right? The opportunity that we got to do that first furniture, that contract furnishing assignment, had I just rushed to market and got that opportunity, I would have botched it. Like I wasn't ready for that, right? It was that deep, immersive roll up your sleeves work that I did that when that opportunity came, I was ready for it. I was ready to capitalize on that. So it was strategic positioning, growing, learning my market, doing the work, making the sacrifices, swallowing my pride, putting my hubris aside, right? And I had people and saw me all the time by accident, indirectly. They make comments like, well, you know, make sure you stay in school so that when you graduate, you don't have to be a mover. And I'm like, yeah, this is my business. Like, this is what I do full time. So things like that would happen all the time, right? So you, th there's, there's these pressures that we experience and, and I'm telling you, it's so much harder. It's so much harder, so much harder to go from launch to six figures than it is from six to seven figures. I, I'm telling you it is because once you've gotten to six, you figure out what works, you know what works and you dial in on that and you double down on it. And then you've got money to pour back into it. And then you can do ad spend and you can really go in. And that's when you're spending $750,000 a day on Facebook ads, or you're able to build your audience by running ads to your YouTube channel or building retargeting ads and on Facebook from your Pinterest efforts or whatever the case may be. So once you figure that out and you've dialed in on that verbiage, right? And you understand how to articulate a message to your specific people. All you do is scale that out. It's not a matter of doing more. It's just doing those things that worked way better and a much higher level and at scale. There were some podcasts I was listening to. It was talking about how it's more important to build a brand based on your name versus like the examples given were Elon Musk and Gary Vaynerchuk. And like, you know, those names, a lot of people don't know that there's VaynerMedia and sure. he has all these companies and stuff. And then I guess most people know that Elon Musk has right. Tesla and stuff. Right. But I don't know that I put guess, him in the personal branding category. I think he's starting to understand the value of it. I think he's starting to put himself out in front and know what, how important that is. And I think that's very uncomfortable for him. I think he's definitely more of an introvert than what he leads on. I mean, just watch his Joe Rogan interviews. You can tell he is not entirely comfortable with, <laughs> with, with that predicament, whether that's forced from his board of advisors, his board of directors, you know, kind of muting kind of or regulating or filtering some of the things that he says and him kind of censoring himself or whether it's him truly being uncomfortable, probably a combination of the two. But yeah, I guess the, the point is maybe focusing on building your personal brand more so than necessarily building a other brand so that anything that you produce, if your name is on it, mm -hmm. then you know what I'm saying? It seems like that's kind of what people are doing these days, whether it's, I mean, I guess Russell Brunson would be an example. Yeah, um, he would. Ty Lopez, Grant Cardone. There's a bunch of them that you hear the name and you know. You know who they are. When was that yeah. ever the case? 20 years ago, if you thought about some of the big companies, right? Like, first of all, you wouldn't have known about Cardone at all, right? You wouldn't have known about his enterprising efforts because he wouldn't have had, he, well, he's not big enough to be on that scale in terms of his own, like he's not Procter & Gamble, right? He's not Coca-Cola. So you're seeing, and I, you know, you're seeing people that are emerging and you're understanding the names behind the brands now more than ever. And I think it's only going to continue because we, once the curtain is pulled back and you can realize what authenticity actually looks like, which is fantastic, by the way, there's no going back from that, right? Like the Wizard of Oz can't go back behind the curtain and pretend like you never saw it right? We now understand there are people behind these things and we hold them accountable, right? We hold them accountable to certain things. When something goes wrong with Amazon, people don't say Amazon's a bad company. What do they do? They tag Jeff Bezos on Twitter and say, you're wrong. This was, this was terrible. You should do something about it. Where there's, there's social accountability involved, but also too, I think their brands personified, right? These brands have a personality now. They have a character, they have a story. If you read Donald Miller's story brand, you can see why and you can see the power of that, right? Like people love the Jeff Bezos story using him as a particular example. People love the Mark Zuckerberg story, 
you know, start in his college apartment or college dorm or what have you. We, like we love the save with Steve Jobs. Like we love those stories. As creatures, we like those positive story arcs, right? And you don't get that with a brand as much as you get with a human that is relatable, that's flawed, right? So I don't think we ever go back. And I go so far to say that I think I would actually buy your kids URLs, even if your kids don't exist, right? Like we have theoretical kids and I'm like, let's buy their URLs and buy their domain right now because it's digital real estate. And if you look at the world going forward, that is going to be a tangible asset. Like we already have digital currencies, right? Like these things are happening. The world is changing and evolving. I don't think it's ever going to take place of our current monetary system because the world would have to collapse and fall to its knees for that to really take place in my opinion. But in terms of what we do, meaning online creators and, and online business owners, I think the most important thing that you can be doing, now keep in mind, it's a long-term play, all right? If you're building a personal brand, it's going to take a lot of hours to figure out. And I highly recommend, like I could not recommend more, doing the work in the offline space first. Because the, the velocity to understanding your market is so much faster when you do it in person. Right. And I don't care if that means you need to go to the local farmer's market and sell your little trinkets or get on, you know, or go to workshops in person or networking events or whatever the case may be, because the velocity of you understanding your market at a deep, innate level, you there's so much we lose. There's it's called the 73855 rule. It's really important to remember this one. I, it's from the book, Never Split the Difference. I mean, he didn't he didn't create the study. He just cited the study. I don't want to take it away from the person that actually did the study. But basically, 7% of whether a person likes you or dislikes you, just on those grounds alone, 7% is actually what you say, right? 38% is how you say it. So your tonality and so on and so forth, you know, the, the energy in your voice, whatever. 55% is your facial and your verbal or your nonverbal cues, your physical cues that you provide, right? So imagine this. Imagine you trying to understand your market. Let's take that same study and let's apply it to you understanding your market. They can respond and say, I love this so much. This was such a great idea. I love this piece of content. I love this offer. I love this whatever, right? I love this Facebook post, this YouTube video, whatever. Well, here's the deal. You, you're missing, you're only getting the 7%. You're only getting the what they said. You can't even read. So I mean, how many times you get a text message and you kind of get pissed off at your friend because you misinterpreted what they were, you read what they said, you, you misinterpreted how they said it. And thus you were upset because you read it differently than what it actually was. And now, and these are people, you know, these are family members and friends. Now imagine random strangers, people you've never met on the internet, and you're trying to make assessments about the future of your brand and your business and about the direction you're going to go with your offerings off of what somebody said that you never met this in maybe another country or somewhere in the world you've never met, maybe in their mom's basement. You have no idea. So I just don't know how, again, I don't know how you can do that without that really, really profound 55% of reading people, feeling their energy, right? Like we can, when we become and use tactical empathy, when we can feel people and their response and shut up and listen and ask questions. And I struggle with this more than anybody, as you can clearly tell with how much I talk, I struggle with just letting things come to me, learning, observing, and, and feeling, you know, through empathy, feeling what they feel about the things that I'm saying, what I'm presenting, what I'm offering, pricing, whatever, right? So I think so many of us, we, we want to run to market and try to sell, sell, sell and, and grow and prosper and all these things. And it's like, man, there's so, sometimes we have to just slow down a little bit and put ourselves in situations to just let things come to us, like very strategically position ourselves so that we can learn these things and analyze and assess and use science to our benefit, not work against it, right? And I understand you wanted to, you know, work online and have an online business for reasons. So you didn't have to do those things. Understand that it's just going to be much faster if you do, right? I'm not saying you can't do it. I, I rarely see people go from launch to online successfully. It doesn't take years and years and years and years and years. And even then we see them struggle. 
usually what I see is people do is there's iterations in that first crawl iteration that I mentioned is usually hands-on face-to-face work in some capacity. That book you mentioned, Never Split the Difference, is that the one by the FBI yep. negotiator? Okay. That's all my, yeah. That's it's a really good list. book. It's a really good book. It's definitely one of those like, okay, how does this apply to me? Like he's negotiating with a hostage in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Like how does this, what does this mean for my business? Like what do I do with that? He does a pretty good job, I think, of translating it, but yeah, really, really good one. I think that book has helped me a lot just in terms of, you know, my, sometimes this is really important. Sometimes we think about marketing, marketing without the psychology. Like I like those two words, marketing psychology. Marketing is just a tactic. Marketing psychology is a strategy, right? And understanding, Seth Godin talks about that. Understanding the difference, the foundational difference between a tactic and a strategy is so profound. Like it will literally change everything you do. You need to understand your market. You need to market to them from a, through a psychological lens, not just through, you know, a very thinly veiled lens of, yeah, I think I like this. It's a cool product. I think I'd buy it. Maybe here you could buy it. You know, it's just totally different. Do you feel like podcasting helps with making that personal connection and gaining trust? No, that's a really, so it's part of the puzzle, part of the puzzle. And this is my experience and everybody's experience might be different, but let me just tell you my experience. My experience has been I've learned a lot from the people, right? And that, and that is, I mean, that is invaluable. I mean, I've had Damon John on, like I personally had Damon John speaking to me. And don't think I don't wrap up questions that are directly like things that I want to know. You know what I mean? Like, hey, great mentor. And some of the people I've had on my show, the Barbara Corcoran's, the Marie Forleo's, you know, I mean, you name it, like Ryan Dice, Ryan Levesque, all those people that I've mentioned, Dave Asprey, Dr. Josh Axe. I mean, yeah. And, and I feel bad even naming people because I've had so many people on the show that are like, I feel so bad because I forgot about David Merriman Scott. I forgot about the other 40 plus New York Times bestselling authors. I forgot about Kevin Cruz. I forgot, you know, like I feel bad and I love all of them and they're so amazing. And I, I, I just cherish the conversations that I had with them. But, and I learned a lot from them. Here's why I don't think that podcasting in its current format is what you need it to be to fully learn your market. There isn't that as far as that direct feedback from your audience, it's not there. It's just not. Right. It's hard to get people to even leave you a review for your show. Right. Like we've been around forever and I still have less than a hundred reviews. I'm like, how's it even possible? Look at the amount of downloads compared to the amount of reviews. And it's like, we don't ask for them. Right. So the engagement rate is just so low. There's things you can do to read between the lines. Right. One of the things that we do is we analyze and I use, I, sorry, I couldn't think of it for a second. There are so many tools I use. We'll use Podkite and we'll analyze, you know, certain things that we've, pieces of content we've put out and the amount of downloads that we've gotten for that content and so on and so forth. And we can kind of say like, okay, what are the themes here? People obviously like topics surrounding what, right? And so we've been able to glean from that and say, people are early in their journey with our audience because a lot of stuff that we talk about are like starting out, picking your business idea, all of those like early stage concepts we talk about. And then we create buckets around that, right? Like this topic really resonated. What was it about this specific topic? Was it the phase or the season of business they're in or was the way that it was worded or is it a combination of the two? How can we derive that meaning? But what I would do is this, I would use it as a part of, and I love this terminology. If you're listening to this and you take anything away, like this is the one thing, holistic marketing strategy, right? Podcasting, whatever you do, it's part of your holistic marketing strategy. I think sometimes what we do is we start fixating on one element of our marketing strategy and not looking at it as a whole. How do these all interconnect, right? So for example, how do I use social media to tie into my list building efforts, right? Because sometimes it's not an A to B relationship. So what you might do is say, how do I use social media to validate topics that people like? When I post about these things, look at the engagements through the roof. Like it's crazy. Now I'm going to take that and laterally think about what I'm going to create my next podcast episode around. So 
I find out that people like sales. Let's just say, let's just throw out there as an example, right? B2B sales, right? So my content that I've tested, because there's no faster feedback than micro content on social media, right? So Instagram is probably one of the best ones for that right now. But keep in mind also that part of your holistic marketing strategy is understanding where and what your audience is on each one of those platforms. Because I'm gonna tell you right now, the Pinterest audience is a completely different demographic than Instagram. And it's a completely different demographic than LinkedIn. And it's a completely different graphic for demographic from Facebook. So you need to understand where your people are, who they are, and if they are on all those various things and test each one of those on all of those various platforms, taking that away and understanding, okay, here's who I serve. Here's what aligns with that, right? Like, let's say my people are on Instagram because that's what I've deemed. These are my people. This is who I serve. Then take that again. What are the ones that really, really do well and make a list of here are all the podcast episodes that we want to talk about, right? Here are all the things that we want to talk about. And then even going further down the line, think about, okay, what can we do to, to further the relationship, right? Ryan Dice talks about it. It's not B2B. It's not B2C. It's H to H. It's human to human. Thinking human to human. If you met somebody at a coffee shop, right? And you wanted to go out, you wanted to go up and ask for a date, right? Like, what would you do? You wouldn't walk up and be like, will you marry me? Like, that's weird, right? Like we wouldn't do that right? Or let's jump in the sack. Like you would say, okay, how do I get the next phone call? Or how do I get a phone number? Right? How do I get a phone number? Then how do I get a, a phone conversation? And then from the conversation, maybe I'm going to play two conversations before I ask that person out on a date, right? Like I'm going to play it slow and really be strategic and map that out. That's exactly what your online effort should look like. So it's okay. We've seen that this content really works well on Instagram or on Facebook or LinkedIn, whatever. Now, now how do I do this to build a further relationship? What's the phone call? Maybe the phone call equivalence is the podcast because now instead of this little short piece of micro content, they're hearing your thoughts and ideas on it for an hour, right? So they've really gotten indoctrinated to you and you've nurtured that relationship. Then it's, okay, where do I want to send them from there? Ideally, you want to funnel them down, right? The, the, the idea is their moment of understanding who you are, moment of awareness, right? Awareness of you starts hopefully at the high level, like social media, what have you. And then you're, ideally, you don't want to send them side to side. You want to send them louder. You want to send them downward, meaning down towards your, your website and your email list because it's owned versus borrowed real estate, Right. So as much as you can get them on the email list, I'm telling you guys, that's the big thing that I hear from everybody is I should have built my email list sooner. I didn't take it seriously. And by the way, I'm in that bucket too, right? So how do I test that? How do I use that? Then what do I do? What's the call to action from the podcast? Now, my experience with the podcasting has been, it's great as a re-nurture strategy for people that are already on my email list. That's been my experience. Not the other way around, not as far as discovery, not as far as discoverability. So there's other things like, for example, for me, my blog, my blog is great as far as discoverability because we're strategically putting out content based off what we found from Instagram, picking that off that micro content. Let's do searchable. What I don't like about podcasting is it's not searchable, right? So whatever I tell people to do is you want at least one of your primary efforts to be search rich content, because otherwise the life of a tweet, the life of an Instagram post is like, at most 24 hours, right? And that's really being conservative. That's really, really push stretching. Like tweets, I think last about 30 seconds in the feed. That's it. Who and when have you ever scrolled down somebody's feed to see what they said five years ago? Somehow they do this to politicians or people that say bad things. They find it and be like, how did you find that from 10 years ago? That's so crazy. What's wrong with you? You're so creepy. But in terms of the stuff that you're putting out, no one's ever going to find that again. You put that up and you wrap that up in something like a pin on Pinterest, or you put it up in a blog, or you put it on YouTube. That's searchable, right? That's searchable content. So I would use micro content to create searchable content, drive them to your email list from there, have a good call to action based on that content, something that really resonates. Maybe you can test that with some ad spend, like $5 a day, create something that's just like, hey, this is a, I have a 2020 read list. What are the books? Why? Because I have a book club, duh, right? So reverse engineer that. So they download my book list and then we take them through the process of introducing them to this idea of a book club. Now, here's the deal. 
they're in that list. Now, what do we do? They're getting those emails about updates for new podcast episodes, right? So I'm re-nurturing them online. And I'm also asking them and prompting them as soon as they join my email list, go find me everywhere else. It's been proven that, and this is really weird. This is from Invisible Selling Machine by Ryan Dice. Really, really good. It's very nerdy, but it's really good. But he says that if you, speaking of the human to human thing, like how do you get a date? How do you whatever eventually to like, you know, how do you treat that relationship? If you are out, this is psychologically, I don't know whatever studies they did, but if you're out and you're providing courtship to somebody, you're trying to date them or whatever, that you're far more likely to end up having amorous activities with them or furthering that relationship if you literally move them from one place in the bar to the other or changing locations, like going outside the bar to talk or moving or whatever, something about it creates trust when you move them somewhere else outside of the place that you discovered them. So when they join your email list, like having them follow you on social media and giving them the links to do so really grossly enhances the chance that you are going to retain them. So I think that having them join you, having them join your email list, listening and following you online and then listening to your content not only are you building trust, but you're deepening the relationship, which eventually then you come back at some point and you offer them something to sell, right? But it's, again, when you look at it through that lens, that's so much more complex than, hey, I'm putting out content because it feels authentic or, hey, I'm doing this because, you know, like, this is what I want to teach people. This is the value I want to provide. Like, that's great. I'm not taking anything away from that. But if you don't have that strategy wrapped up behind it, if you don't really think about it from that perspective of, what marketing psychology, right? Not just mar- marketing is putting out posts. Marketing psychology is what I just described. It's what am I doing with this relationship? How am I taking them through the process of getting them to fall in love with the idea of me wanting them to go through and build that relationship, wanting to learn from me, wanting to pay me their hard earned money because I've earned it. How do you do that? That's an entirely different discussion and it is much more complex and it takes much more time to develop. Those are good takeaways. I think I've learned a few things on this podcast and I really appreciate your time. One question I had, uh, it's kind of for my own personal curiosity, I guess. You've mentioned Damon John and Barbara Corker and all that. And I love Shark Tank. That's actually my favorite show. I would love to get any of those people on my show, but particularly I'm interested in Barbara Corcoran because she has that book Shark Tales. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's basically about her upbringing and growing up and how she started with a thousand bucks mm-hmm. and it grew to a, a billion dollars. It was like a loan from her like, she ex boyfriend, too. <laughs> yeah, she talked about that on my yes. she talked about that on my show. So I think that specific topic of going from a thousand bucks to a billion dollar empire mm-hmm. would be good for my show in particular because my focus is how to manage or maintain a business for under a hundred dollars a month, but I mean a thousand. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for like how do you get how do you Barbara get Barbara Corcoran one hundred and one go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So that's I will say I'm the wrong person to ask about Barbara specifically. Barbara was actually Barbara actually came their team actually came to us and that was through Damon and also through Cousins Maine Lobster. So I don't know if you recall Cousins Maine Lobster from the show Shark Tank, but they were one of her highly highly successful investments that she did. Uh, really awesome guys. They're actually literally two cousins that started a food truck business and, and lobsters and what have you. So they came on the show, had a great time and saw that Damon had been on. Again, the people that represented Damon also represented Cousins Main Lobster. And then they reached out to Barbara, unbeknownst to me, and she was starting a podcast at the same time. And they said, this would be a great for you to get exposure. So that was complete serendipity. I had nothing to do with that pursuit whatsoever. Mm. From what I've heard, and I've had several people ask me this question about Barbara specifically, from what I've heard, she charges $20,000 for an appearance. I obviously, didn't pay, I obviously oh. didn't pay that because it was a completely different situation in my case. But I've heard that 
it's a it's a it's a pay to play kind of thing with her. I don't know if that's accurate. I've not reached out to actually find that out. I will say this though: there are other podcasters in the space that have asked me specifically about her and how I got her uh, because she is very inaccessible and she's really particular and cut off about what she does and where she does and stuff like that. So I would say here's the thing though: as far as just general advice on if somebody does have a podcast, including yourself, if you're looking for advice on some of the big guests that we've gotten. I would say the first thing is, is understand who you need to contact. It's not necessarily what you say, it's who you say it to, but also too, is how you position yourself, right? So a lot of people, what I'll see is they have a very unimpressive looking website. They have very low resolution images on their site. They don't, they, we, we fail to capitalize on this thing called leverage. What have I done, right? Everybody's got a show. Like there's a million shows on Apple podcasts now. Like everybody has a show. Why is your show different? And, and not just cutesy things like, oh, we, you know, whatever, like we, we want to help, you know, whatever mompreneurs achieve their whatever. Like that's, that's great. I'm glad that's what you do, but that's not going to secure Barbara Corcoran. All right. So it needs to be, here's what we've done. It needs to be a business proposal. That's what it needs to be. Here are the downloads we get. Here are the previous guests we've gotten. Mine is very clear. Here's a, a here's a sample of, of an episode. So you can hear what we talked about. Here are all the guests we've had. Here's a scheduling link. Here's how long it lasts. Here's what we you know, what we expect, here's the tools that we use, so on and so forth. And then we always put a little personal tidbit in there about what we want to talk to her specifically about and why it's relevant to our audience. Because here's the deal. This is the mistake that we make. And this was, this is like sales 101. People think about what is, how it's going to benefit them, right? It's about us. It's about, and this goes back to what Jay Abraham said about us being a little bit self-absorbed as a society, as a culture. Think about what's the win for them, What's the win for Damon John coming on my show? What's the win for Barbara Corcoran coming on your show? Figure out what that is. And that's your pitch. That's your presentation. That's and get creative because they see these things every day at large, right? So what makes you different? What makes you stand out? How can you lead with value? How do you make it a win for them? How do you make it appealing for them? And how do you leverage? And that's huge. I want to make sure I highlight this because I'm going to say it again. Leverage we underestimate the leverage that we have. We mitigate and diminish the things that we've done that are actually really impressive, right? So you better believe the minute that I was trending, what did I say I did? We got to capitalize, leverage. Everybody else that I've done, you know, look, it's it's long-term. Like I'm building up to Tony Robbins and Sir Richard Branson and these guys, and how am I going to do that? Okay, well, who's connected? Who are friends with them that are attainable for me to reach right now? Who are people that work with those people? Who are people that know those people? Who are people that know the people that know the people, right? Like, Every single person, I kind of have a roadmap of like, okay, here's where this is going. And then fortunately, some of them fall on my lap, right? Like Russell Brunson, you mentioned him, like Russell's coming on my show in the fall. Like Russell just kind of fell in my lap through serendipity, through whatever. Like eventually what you'll do is you'll start to build a name for yourself. Even if you don't, you don't have to have a massive show. You don't have to have millions of downloads to do this. But eventually you'll start building a name for yourself where people will, that will start coming if you keep playing the leverage and positioning game the way that you should. But yeah, it's, it's a game of strategy. You have to think that way, right? And you're not going to get a yes right out of the gates. And you're, again, my email thread with Damon John was 250 plus emails, not with him specifically, with his team. So it's a long process. And sometimes always remember this, no just means not yet or not now, right? It's just short for no or for not yet or not now. So you have to understand that you're going to get a no. Many people have gotten no's. Four years later, I keep working around. I play a different angle. Hey, they're promoting something. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to make this a win for them. Okay, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Or I talk to a different person. Yeah, this looks great. Let's do this, right? So you got it. You got to understand, play it through that lens versus just the lens of like, hey, I'd love to have you on my show because my audience would resonate. Like that's not a win for her. That's a win for you. And we we do that too often. I'm not saying pick on you specifically. I'm just saying in general. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like, what's in it for them? You got to make it appealing for them to take the time to be on your show. Speaking of which, I appreciate mm. your time being on my show. I know we've gone over <laughs> quite a bit, but it's been a, it's been a lot of good information. I really appreciate it. And where do you recommend people go to find out more about you? And I know you have your website, which is chrismichaelharris.com, which by the way, that's like personal branding. Because <laughs> I was noticing that your website is your name, whereas a lot of podcasters, like yeah. where that's their main thing, the their show. website is is the yeah, show. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm the asset. The vehicle is the vehicle is just whatever it is that I do. I always wanted to make sure that was abundantly clear. So it's easier to just we have two URLs. You can just go to heycmh.com. It's a little bit easier to type. And if you're like my wife, I'm sorry, I have to pick up my wife. I know I'm doing it publicly to the world, but I do. <laughs> she always misspells my middle name. She is M-I-C-H-E-A-L, not A-E-L. So some people mix that up. Totally uh-huh. okay. Uh, so heycmh.com is the easiest one to to go to. And then at heycmh on social media to follow and continue the discussion. And then if you want to check out the book club, it's the vipbookclub.com. That's the vipbookclub.com. And I appreciate you, by the way. I want to Make sure that I tell your audience, guys, this stuff is really, really hard um, putting in. I don't think people realize the time commitment it is to reach out, have all this stuff format, especially do it right. And the show was done right. The, the information we received beforehand was very thorough. We knew exactly what we were planning to ask, all the, the technical specifics. So to do it right is very, very difficult to do. And it's very time strenuous and it's a big sacrifice. So please leave a review, follow, subscribe to the show and follow on social media. It would be you know, someone that appreciates the work that's been put into the show, I would appreciate if you would do that and, and lend my friend here a favor. Oh, wow. I appreciate you plugging that. <laughs> I've never had anyone do that mm-hmm. before, so I appreciate sure. it. And then I'll also have show notes at thesarahstjohn.com forward slash Chris. Thank you for having me. It was fun. If you enjoyed and found value from this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you rate, review, subscribe, and share at ratethispodcast.com forward slash frugalpreneur. Until next time. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack, connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.